Now, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her that she may be healed, and she will live. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for twelve years, and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in a crowd and touched his garment, for she said, If only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out from him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done this thing. But when the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house and said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, John, the brother of James. And then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. And when he came in, he said to them, why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. And he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kumai, which is translated little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked for she was 12 years of age and they were overcome with great amazement but he commanded them strictly that no one should know it. And he said something should be given her to eat. And Father, we pause and just ask for the gracious help of the power of your Holy Spirit to understand this portion of your word and that we would have an ear to hear what your spirit wants to say to this part of your church through this particular section that we're looking at together this morning. So speak, Lord, your servants are listening. And we ask expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I have found, I'm sure you also would agree, that oftentimes life does not work out the way that we expect. If there is one thing that we learn more and more the longer our journey becomes, in fact, I shared this in our practical life skills class with our young adults uh, on Mondays, that life is not going to unfold the way that you expect it to. There are certain things that are going to happen, events are going to transpire, and whether it's setback, disappointment, discouragement, hardship, tragedy, you can go on with the list. Things don't always work out the way that we thought they would, the way that we prefer that they would. Part of life is unexpected things, and look, that does not always mean, however, that something's wrong. Just because things don't unfold the way we planned, the way that we thought that they would, or even that we thought that they should, it doesn't necessarily mean something's wrong. It just means that life events unfolded a little bit different than we ourselves had envisioned they would, or that we preferred they would, or that we planned that they would. And sometimes it's a strong reminder that we don't always have as much control 
over everything that goes on in our lives to the degree that we thought we did. However, the Lord is never limited no matter what unfolds. He can work in various different ways however it's needed, and he can respond to anything that transpires or unfolds. He can redeem situations. I've seen it over the years in incredible ways. I've watched the Lord bring blessings out of curses. I've watched the Lord use bad things, and in time, as people love him and keep serving him, ultimately find a way to still bring something good out of even a bad event that may unfold or may transpire. The Lord himself often will work in unique ways rather than what we thought. And we see that unfolding in our text here. Things were not working out as the way that some in our record had planned, certainly not the way that they preferred. Events were unfolding, shocking things were happening, unplanned challenges, but as the Lord worked, the result ended in good things ultimately on the back end. Jesus ultimately was still able to work. Now look with me back at verse 21 as our, our text opens this morning. We're told this, that Jesus, verse 21, had now crossed over again, back across the Sea of the Galilee, by boat to the other side. And a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. So because Jesus is a perfect gentleman, he has no problem at all honoring the request of the people of the Gadarenes. Remember where he just was prior to this, who if you look back in verse 17, what did they want him to do after he healed this demoniac and freed this man in their culture that was a real burden and gave him a wonderful life, put him back in his right mind, the way that they thanked Jesus because their business suffered and the profit margin dropped in their illegal operation, they pleaded with Jesus, leave. Go away. We don't want you in this region. You're causing our business not to succeed. You're disrupting what we're doing here. And they actually asked Jesus to depart from the region. So Jesus dialogued with the man that he had just healed, told him to stick around, stay there, keep ministering in the region. The Lord still spread the gospel through that brand new convert who was super excited about the Lord and his work. And Jesus departed. He left. They didn't want him to be there. They didn't want his presence. And so because they didn't want his presence, Jesus graciously, like a gentleman, he doesn't force people. He doesn't violate their will. He departs from the region. And verse 21 says, he now crosses back again in the boat, back over to the other side. So he's now back on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he probably arrives back geographically in the area of Capernaum as he comes back across from the area of the Gadarenes. And we're told in verse 21 that when he arrives, a great crowd, a big multitude of people, gathers together as they see his boat now coming back up to the shoreline. Now, among this crowd, as we saw in our reading, were specifically two people with a great need. Both of their life circumstances had great needs. One was regarding disease that could not be healed, and the other was regarding imminent death of a loved one who really was very terminal. One, of course, we know was Jairus, the synagogue ruler, who his young daughter was terminally ill on her deathbed. The other is this woman who you notice is unnamed, and in her own body, she had been plagued with infirmity for 12 years. Interesting. She had an infirmity for 12 years. Jairus was having a tragedy, and his daughter, who was 12 years old, we see by the end of the text, is terminally ill, and it looks like that she is going to die, and Jesus will encounter and take time for both of them and help them, and they both share a similar need, and that's their inhuman desperation. They're at a point of utter desperation, little bit different stories, but other than that, that they're both in human desperation, everything else about the lives of these two people is vastly different if you really think about it from a bird's eye perspective. Jairus was a synagogue ruler, which means he was a man who was well-known, popular, he was important and influential, he was esteemed by people in the community. The woman is the exact opposite. She's anonymous. We're not even told her name in the story. The Holy Spirit doesn't even tell us her name. She lives a life basically unknown in relative obscurity 
She has no rank in society. She's not influential. In fact, if anything, she technically would be an outcast in society and ostracized because of her condition. Jairus was well-established. He was probably a wealthy man. He was powerful. He had position. The woman, she had lost everything. She had lost all of her finances because of her health condition and all the endeavors trying to get cured and get healed. So she was in relative poverty. She was powerless. She had no network system of people to help her out because people didn't even want to interact with her because of her condition. Jairus had experienced up to this time 12 years of basic happiness with his little daughter, this beautiful little girl that he was raising. And for the last 12 years, he has had a wonderful life with power, position, wealth, importance, and this precious little 12-year-old daughter and had happiness for 12 years. The woman had experienced 12 years of misery. The last 12 years of her life have been dealing with a health affliction that the Bible says she could find no healing for. And not only that, it says her condition progressively just grew worse and worse and worse. So she's just had 12 miserable years. Now, I think it's a good reminder that no matter what person, uh, what a person's social station is in life, all people regardless of their social status or their situation, are subject to trials, to tragedy, to crisis. One is a rich, influential, important man with position and clout, and he's well-known. The other is a woman who's living in obscurity and is kind of an outcast in society, and no one even knows what her name is. We're not even told it here. And both of them go through a hardship. They both enter into a crisis. They're both facing problems because that's a part of human existence. No one's immune from it. You can't escape it. You can't think that somehow you can elude at times hardship or challenges or problems. It ultimately knocks on the door of every person, every human being. And that being said, all people we see in the text, they all need Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are, what your situation Everyone has the same need of Jesus. And here's the best part. Jesus will respond and help both of them, as we see, showing no partiality. He's not impressed with Jairus. In fact, he makes Jairus wait longer for his miracle. <laughs> He's not impressed with Jairus and overdoting over him. Oh, he might be a big donor. We better take care of him first. He takes care of the woman first. And she's got nothing to contribute. The Bible tells us in Luke 20 that they said admirably of Jesus, you do not show personal favoritism. Aren't you glad that Jesus shows favoritism to no one? He's impressed with no one, but he also doesn't despise and overlook or not care about someone because maybe they have nothing seemingly to offer. Jesus shows equal love and care to everyone. Now let's begin to look at our story and meet these two individuals here. The first comes to us in verses 22 and 23. It says, behold... One of the rulers of the synagogue came where the crowd was gathering. He came and Jairus was his name. And when he saw Jesus, verse 22 says, he fell at his feet in desperation and begged him earnestly saying, my little daughter lies at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. We're told that Jairus is a synagogue ruler, which means he was the one responsible in the synagogue for maintaining the building's physical property. The synagogue ruler took responsibility for maintaining the facility itself, as well as the one who arranged and oversaw the worship meetings themselves, who was going to do the scripture reading from the law, who was going to handle the teaching. Again, they, they kind of coordinated the worship meetings also, and Jairus no doubt had become aware of Jesus' public ministry by this point in time, as well as the power of Jesus to heal. By this point in the Lord's ministry, and if this is very likely Capernaum, where there was a synagogue, it's incredibly hard to think that Jairus would not know of Jesus and his power and the things that he had been doing. In fact, it's very possible that he was there in the synagogue of Capernaum when Jesus had healed, remember Mark chapter 3, the man with the withered hand. So it's possible that Jairus himself in the synagogue he was the ruler of, 
that he was there in Mark chapter 3, when, remember, the man had the withered hand, and they were all watching Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him. And then when Jesus healed the man's hand, remember, it says Jesus was angered by the hardness of the hearts of all the people who were there who cared more about trying to catch him in some religious tradition breaking rather than ministering to people and having love for him or belief in the Lord. So it's possible that Jairus' heart up to this point maybe had been hard towards Jesus. If he was in that synagogue and he's the ruler of that synagogue of Capernaum, maybe he was one of those people that was kind of hard-hearted and didn't want to follow Jesus. Or perhaps, I don't know, maybe he had began to believe in Jesus. He started seeing the Lord's power, but maybe he's kind of just been somewhat distant and apathetic. However, now what happens his whole world bottoms out. Whatever the situation was prior, at this moment in time with his little daughter, in a matter of moment, an unexpected tragedy strikes the home of Jairus. And all of a sudden now, worst of worst, his precious 12-year-old daughter, Luke in his account says it was his only daughter, is now terminally ill. Jairus comes begging Jesus, saying to him, my daughter, verse 23, is at the point of death. So she is terminally ill. She is on death's doorway. And listen, if you are a parent this morning, you can understand exactly what Jairus would be feeling in that moment. The, the, the worry, the concern, the torment, the fear I mean, all death is hard, but they say, and it's probably very likely true, that one of the worst, if not the hardest forms of navigating death is when a parent loses their child first or has to bury their own child because the order is just so out of the way we expect it to happen. We expect our children to bury us. None of us ever expects to bury one of our own children or to lose one of our own children. And look, I can't even imagine the pain, but think about it too. Jairus has had 12 years of bonding with his daughter. And I'm not diminishing losing a child at any age could somehow be easy one way or the other. But when you add on to that, he's had 12 years of bonding with his little girl. And now all of a sudden she's ill and he's about to lose her and his stable life has been rocked with a bombshell as the bottom has now dropped out and I think it's a very strong reminder, despite how great and stable life is, a crisis and tragedy can change everything in a moment, literally in a moment. A crisis strikes, and when tragedy comes, it doesn't it not, it kind of just drops like a bomb. There's no advance notice. It's like the bomb just drops, and all of a sudden, people are left trying to put the pieces together. No one adequately is prepared for a crisis. You don't get advance notice before a tragedy strikes your life or comes into your family or disrupts your personal situation. You just kind of, the bomb drops and then you start trying to navigate your way through the process. And this is what's happening now with Jairus and his family. And for Jairus, all of a sudden, nothing else matters anymore. His position doesn't matter. His career doesn't matter. His money doesn't matter. His pride doesn't matter. He comes running into this crowd where Jesus is at, and he casts all that aside, and you want to talk about utter humility. This man who was very prominent and influential and probably very admired and well-respected, he comes running in, and it says there he falls at Jesus' feet and starts begging him, begging Jesus that he would please come and touch his daughter and bring healing to his daughter and his human value system, you might say, it changed overnight. And that's kind of what happens when tragedies come. It's amazing how tragedies have a real strong way of making us realize again what really does matter and what stuff really doesn't matter that sometimes we get so preoccupied with. And this is kind of what struck Jairus' situation now. And he comes to Jesus, sets aside all of his pride, and starts begging in desperation. You can almost hear the heart and the tone of his voice. And what's God doing now? He's going to utilize this personal tragedy and crisis to bring Jairus to a place of deeper relationship with him, or maybe, for the first time, a real relationship with him. And you know, God in his love and his wisdom, boy, he knows how to get the mileage out of everything. 
And so God here is going to orchestrate some really wonderful things in the midst of this, in the midst of this hardship. And God has ways even of working in powerful ways through human hardship. Verse 24 goes on to tell us, so Jesus went with him. Was there dialogue? Did Jesus say, okay, Jairus, don't worry about this. I I can heal you. We're not told. The Holy Spirit leaves that just completely undescribed there. It could have been Jesus quietly just decides to go, and that's the assurance. Hey, he's coming, and so now they're moving in that direction. But what do we begin to see? Jesus went with him. What that clearly shows is the compassion of Jesus, the concern of Jesus, the way Jesus responds to a person falling at his feet and begging him earnestly for help in their situation. Jesus is not aloof. He's not disinterested. And look, if Jairus' heart had been hard, that also shows us there that apparently Jesus doesn't hold a grudge. He doesn't say to Jairus or chide him in that moment or publicly reprove him. Oh, Jairus, now all of a sudden, your heart was hard before in the synagogue. But now because desperation struck, all of a sudden now you want to plead with me and ask for my help and you want my... You see none of that in Jesus here. Jesus responds in his brokenness and his plea for help Because the Lord, unlike us as people, he doesn't hold grudges. He doesn't hold our pasts against us. All he's concerned with so many times is just being gracious, especially when people are broken in their spirit. And when they come before him in a broken manner, Jesus is always ready to be gracious. And so he goes with Jairus. So now it says the great multitude, verse 24, is following with Jesus and Jairus. They're on the way to the house. And they're thronging him, the Bible says. That word thronged him is a term in the Greek that means to press together to crush. So the picture the Holy Spirit's pointing here to is like this parade-like procession going through the street, maybe hundreds of people, maybe more, maybe thousands of people. We're, we're not sure, a great multitude. But it's so much so that it's like the envisioned scene here of like the beginning of a marathon or like a parade of people going down a city street all gathered together pressing together. And it's at this point, we now meet our next individual who has just as much a desperate situation as they're on their way as a crowd. Verse 25, it says, now a certain woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years, and she, verse 26, had suffered many things from many physicians, had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And so many of us want to go, amen. That's been our story. Multiple doctors, spent all you had, and you don't even get fixed. Sometimes it even grows worse, and the problem progresses. And so many of us know the same experience as this woman here. Apparently, this woman is described there. It says, verse 25, she had a flow of blood for 12 years. What it's describing is a continuous hemorrhaging in her uterine area. There's some condition or affliction where it's sort of like an ongoing menstrual cycle with abnormally intense bleeding on a routine basis, if not a constant basis. And there's this hemorrhaging that she continues to deal with with this condition for 12 long years. Now, just imagine, again, with all that ongoing heavy blood loss, the anemic condition that this woman would be in because of the heavy blood loss, the iron levels dropping, the anemia that she would be struggling with, always feeling tired and fatigued and weak because of the constant blood loss. Was there pain with the condition? We're not told. But certainly she's dealing with this condition, and here's what makes it worse, folks. Leviticus 15 said, according to Mosaic law, that woman would be also ceremonially unclean, which means she could not go to the temple for worship gathering. She could not go to the local synagogue and worship with the people. She wasn't allowed to touch others physically. She would be ostracized even by family and friends. According to the Talmud, the Jewish traditions, those with issues like this of vaginal bleeding were also perceived to be under a curse from God. Now, that was a perception. doesn't mean it was the case, but they were perceived, according to the Talmud, as being guilty and therefore being punished with the stroke of God because maybe they had committed adultery or they were sexually impure 
or perhaps even they were involved in prostitution, so God struck them in the womb in this way and would cause these afflictions upon them. So she's also not just dealing with the health condition, but she's got a horrible stigma upon her life. Everyone disdains her. They look upon her with disgust. She's isolated in the midst of her suffering. And like most people in her situation, verse 26 says, she sought out medical assistance for relief. It says right there in verse 26 that she suffered many things from many different physicians. She saw many different doctors seeking help, suffered through the process of trying all different types of treatments, trying to find a cure, trying to get relief from the affliction. The Talmud, again, describes there were all types of different bizarre, I think there were 11 or 12 different bizarre potions and rituals that rabbis and physicians in that day recommended drinking this potion, drinking that, trying this. And no doubt in desperation, she tried all these different recommended ideas. Look, you know what that's like. You're a part of a church family. You come in, you have an affliction. Seven different people will tell you, I got this chiropractor. I got this thing. Oh, no, no, I got a homeopathic approach. Just eat this grass and suck on these rocks for a little while and the minerals will i mean no I, no no essential oils that's the key right, i don't know if that's as popular nowadays but but and right and, and so she's tried this all these different physicians and she's she's doing everything she can just like we do in the midst of her affliction and she's trying these recommended things but verse 26 says she spent all the money that she had and she was no better, but even grew worse. So in effort to try and gain her health, she lost all of her personal wealth now. On top of the physical affliction and the process, her condition's progressively getting worse. And she's living not only in physical suffering, but imagine the cloud of disappointment. Imagine the despair that this woman is living with. It's been 12 years. It's not just the health condition, but she is just exhausted and discouraged and frustrated. Perhaps you can relate. Maybe you've been dealing with some plaguing problem, whatever it may be in your own life for a long period of time. Maybe it's been a health issue. Maybe it's a spiritual struggle that you have tried so many different ways and things and you just continue to keep wrestling with and it's just getting worse. Maybe it's a relationship problem. You can fill in the blank there, but perhaps there's something in your life that you've tried many different things to fix the struggle yourself. You've tried to get relief, you tried to get deliverance, and maybe you spent all you had in your time and your efforts and every idea that you've heard about or you could imagine. Maybe even you've thrown tons of money at it to seek change, and despite all that, it seems the situation is no better, but maybe it's even gotten worse. And how discouraging that is and disheartening. And the difficult place for a person, Proverbs 13, says hope deferred makes the heart sick. And that's where this woman no doubt is at. We can imagine how defeated she is. But look what now happens in the midst of this defeat. Verse 27 says, however, when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd. Again, she's kind of sneaking in because she knows if she gets caught doing such, she could you know, really get you know, kind of chided and, and who knows, potentially be punished by those in the community. Verse 27 says, she came up behind him, touched his garment, for she said, verse 28, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. So notice what happens here. She hears about Jesus, then she goes and reaches out to Jesus, and ultimately what ends up happening, she ends up receiving power and help from Jesus. First, we're told here that she heard, verse 27, about Jesus. No doubt, like everyone else in the community, she'd be hearing word that there was this one, this rabbi, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who some were saying is the promised Messiah, the Son of God. And no doubt she was hearing that he was helping and healing people, that blind people were receiving their sight, that lepers were being cleansed miraculously of their condition, 
that he was restoring withered hands, touching even vile people like tax collectors and, and prostitutes and sinners and those that nobody else wanted to interact with. And she's been hearing testimony about Jesus, repeatedly receiving word about the Lord, and her faith is stirred because of what she's been hearing about Jesus. She's been hearing word about the Lord, and a seed of faith begins to sprout within her heart now. You know, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, does it not, that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of the Lord. And in the same way in our lives, as we hear about the Lord, as we hear the word of the Lord, God tells us that that is one of the things that stirs and generates faith in a human heart. A person hears the gospel message, and when they hear the word of the Lord, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to anyone who believes. So when they hear the word of the Lord through the gospel, through the word of God, a seedbed of faith supernaturally starts stirring in someone's heart. That's why that man got saved Friday evening. When we hear the word of the Lord, it stirs our faith even as Christians as we continue to hear the word of the Lord. Look, are you struggling with faith? Are you struggling with unbelief? Do you wish your faith would grow stronger? I can tell you one of the resolutions to that. Start giving more attention to hearing the word of the Lord. Get in the word of God more. Listen to the word of God more. Listen to Bible studies. Be at meetings where the word of God's being taught. Because as we hear the word of God, we hear about God, his nature, his power, his promises, and the testimonies of the ways that he works. And that has a supernatural way of stirring faith. So her faith is now stirred despite how the past has been. And she decides to reach out to Jesus to see what he might maybe do in her life. Nothing else has helped. It's been 12 long years, but her faith is stirred. Luke tells us in his account that she came up and she touched not his clothes, but Luke says the border of Jesus' garment. Now, that's possibly a reference to the fringe or the tassel that would be on his garment as a Jewish man according to Mosaic law. Numbers 15 declared that they were to put blue borders on their garments, these tassels, as a visual reminder to recall the word of God. It was something that God had told them to do. It was sort of a touch point to think upon God's word. Perhaps as she's approaching Jesus, she's going towards him as a Jewish woman and potentially seeing that blue tassel on his garment and she's recalling the word of God, Exodus 15, in her scripture, God declared, for I am the Lord who heals you. That is Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, your healer. And maybe as she's approaching Jesus, having heard about him, her faith is stirred. She's seeing that hem of his garment. And as she's coming upon the Lord, knowing the power of God has been coming from this man's life, as she's perhaps approaching, maybe she's wondering if the promise of God to heal could actually come true for her now. And as she's approaching Jesus in faith, she's potentially thinking, could it be that I'm still a candidate? to get healed by Jesus because other people have and no doctors ever helped me. No physician, no potion, no medicine, nothing else has ever worked. But that doesn't mean the power of God might not heal me. And so she's approaching Jesus, now reaching out in faith. Technically, you might say she's taking a chance here because think about this honestly, folks. What if it's just another disappointment? That's hard. When you've experienced disappointment after disappointment after disappointment, sometimes it's almost hard to be open again because you're thinking, not another one. I, I just, I, I, I'm not, I'd rather just not try and not face another disappointment. And, and that's a real quandary that we go through in our minds and in our hearts, yet she is responding in faith because her heart's been stirred in faith. This is not another man-made idea. This is not another human suggestion. She's reaching out to the Lord saying, you know what? I'm willing to see what the Lord might do. I'm willing to take a chance on the Lord. I'm willing to take a chance on Jesus. And let me just say this morning, folks, by way of application, there comes a point in our lives at times as the Lord is working that sometimes he may be opening a door for a breakthrough. That's what happened for this woman. She finally had a breakthrough. And sometimes the Lord is interested in bringing a breakthrough. There's a passage in the Old Testament where God himself is given the name 
by David and his men when he orchestrates a deliverance that they call him the God of breakthroughs. And this woman's about to experience a breakthrough. After 12 long years, her heart's been stirred. She's taken a step forward. And sometimes we have to be willing to take a step forward. If our heart is stirred in faith, sometimes we have to be willing to say, you know, maybe I'm going to take a chance here. See if the Lord wants to bring a breakthrough. See if the Lord wants to bring a change. I'm going to go forward in faith, and I'm going to just see what the Lord might do. I'm going to see if maybe he wants to bring a breakthrough. Well, look what happens. Verse 29, it says, immediately as she touches him, the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. The language is she knew experientially that an instantaneous healing had happened. She sensed it. The power of God worked. Now, I'm sure this woman's faith was not perfect, but the Lord's gracious. We don't have to have perfect faith. We can have a tiny little bit of faith. And here this woman comes. No one even knows initially in the crowd that she's just been miraculously healed. Jesus did this. Jesus knows it. He displays his kindness. And what a great story, again, of an incredible breakthrough that the Lord instantaneously changes everything for this woman in one moment. Not just in a day her life changed, in a moment. In one moment, everything turned around and was changed. And that should bring tremendous encouragement to all of our hearts this morning. You know why? Because the Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he does not show partiality which means he is just as willing, just as interested, if it be within the plan of his will, to still bring a breakthrough in your life, in our lives. At times, he is just as able and just as willing. The question is, at times, are we willing to be open to such? And let me exhort you this morning, despite what the past has been, despite what your present situation is, if your heart is stirred in faith, step out. Step out. See what the Lord might do. What if your entire life miraculously changed in a moment? It's possible. I don't know the will of the Lord, but I know this. He hasn't changed. He has the power to still do such. His heart is still the same, and he does not show partiality. And if you feel yourself stirred at faith, don't focus on the past. Step in, see what the Lord might do. Give him a chance to work in your situation. Verse 30 goes on to say, And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that power had gone out from him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples, they're so much like you and I. Lord, you don't see the multitude? Everybody's bumping into you, Lord. Who, you, you just, who touched me? everybody's touching you, Jesus. But see, this is the point that the disciples being dull in their humanity weren't taking into consideration. Jesus knew someone in that whole big crowd touched him in a touch of faith. And Jesus knows the difference between people just bumping into him casually and someone genuinely reaching out to him in sincere faith with expectancy saying, I believe you can help me. And Jesus knew the difference, and his power responded and brought healing to this woman. Verse 32 says, he looked around to see who had done this thing, but the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what happened to her, came and fell down before Jesus and told him the whole story. So Jesus stops the whole procession, connects with this woman personally, who no doubt was planning on probably just slipping away, taking her healing, Woohoo! and just, she's... I didn't get caught, and I got healed. This is a great day in Israel, right? She's thinking, I'm just going to get out of the crowd. My life has just changed. I'm not going to make a ruckus. But no doubt, eventually their eyes meet, verse 33, and it says she's fearing and trembling because she's thinking, oh, man, I got caught. He knows what happened. It, it, it's it's something, nothing I can escape now. And maybe she's thinking he's going to rebuke her. Maybe she is even wondering, oh my goodness, what if he takes it back because I was pushy or I was presumptuous? I didn't even talk to him about it. I just kind of went up and like 
she feels like I took a power grab on him. Like I didn't even ask him. <laughs> I just went up and tried to touch his garment. And when she made contact with the Lord in faith, that little act of faith, God honored and the power of God brought healing. So she's maybe wondering. So she falls at his feet. It says it begins to tell him the whole truth. The idea is she just starts recounting the whole story to him. Lord, and, and this is what's been going on. And so she's now unfolding and pouring out her heart and everybody's hearing the testimony. Now they all realize that she's been healed. Imagine all the ruckus in the crowd. And as she's pouring out her heart to the Lord, no doubt, in gratitude, verse 34, it says that he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. The language is literally whole, completely healed. Go in peace, he says, and be healed of your affliction. Notice, Jesus lets her pour out her heart in gratitude here. He wants to connect with her more than just do a miraculous healing in her life. And he wants to have a heart bonding moment with her which is why he said, who touched me? And he stopped everything and he waited because he wanted this encounter with this woman. It wasn't that he wanted the glory of the healing because many times Jesus would heal people and at the end of the story he says, don't tell anybody now. It wasn't that. Jesus wanted to connect with this woman. He wanted more than just a physical healing. He wanted a relational connection. He even calls her there in verse 34, daughter. And that's a term of endearment. It literally is a term that means my precious little daughter. It's the only time that that phrase actually shows up where Jesus is embracing her very tenderly, and he's not just healing her physically, he's also restoring her back socially. Because by using that term, my little daughter, he's restoring her dignity back to her, her sense of worth and purity in the eyes of the people, and he encourages her notice that her fears of any future problem with this affliction returning is not something she should think, think about. He says to her, Listen, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, be at rest, he says, and be healed of your affliction. Again, he probably knew all that was going on in her heart, and he says to her, look, you can be at rest. Be assured, I've healed you. It's resolved. And to me, this is a beautiful little picture because it reminds us that when the Lord brings change, it's real and it lasts. And that's one of the ways you can quantify whether the Lord brought change or a person got temporary change. Because when Jesus brings change, it's real and it lasts. It doesn't revert back. It lasts because that's the power of the Lord. Now, before we move on to Jairus's conclusion, can I ask you for a moment, ponder what's going on. This is a major interruption here, right? Do you remember where they were headed? to Jairus' house with the terminally ill daughter, and now all of this delay and interruption has taken place. Imagine all the excess stress and anxiety that Jairus is feeling as a dad, right? His daughter's on a thread. He doesn't even know if she's going to make it through the day. But what does this show us? It shows us Jesus always embraces interruptions. Jesus takes time for individuals. He didn't say, look, I've got ministry to do here. I don't have time to talk to you. I'm important. I'm doing ministry here. We're about to go to Jairus' house. Stop interrupting. Jesus takes time for individuals. Hey, let me ask you this morning. We're representatives of Jesus. His spirit dwells within you, should be ruling within us. How well do you respond to interruptions, to being interrupted by people? And recognizing that perhaps, secondarily, as Jesus shows, interruptions sometimes are divinely inspired appointments for the Lord to work. It could be that that interruption that you're irritated by is an appointment God has on your schedule for you to talk to someone or show love to someone or explain something to someone or give attention to someone Sometimes, let me say as well, the Lord allows interruptions when he's working in your life and he's working in my life. Sometimes the Lord may allow a delay or an interruption. And let me say to that, sometimes if God's at work, he may then allow something to get delayed or he may pause the situation or slow the process down or it might even come to a screeching halt. And let me just say to you, don't always freak out. Be patient. Maybe God let a delay. Maybe God purposely allowed things to be deterred, but maybe God ultimately is still going to finish things, just not on your timetable. 
And so don't overly be discouraged. Maybe God does allow a delay. Maybe God lets him, wait, the Lord was working. And then all of a sudden, oh man, God's not going to work now. No, he's just not going to work the way you thought he was going to work. Right? <laughs> That's what I found more than once. Sometimes as God just causes things to come to a delay because his timetable is different. But imagine what Jairus is feeling. Now, add on to that. Look what goes on, verse 35. While he was still speaking to the woman, people now come from Jairus' house, the ruler of the synagogue, and they say, imagine hearing this, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Imagine that bomb now, dropping on Jairus' heart and mind. His hope has just been crushed, this tragic news. And basically, what are they saying, Jairus? It's too late. Sorry, man. I mean, there's no sense even to bring the teacher to your house anymore, Jairus. There, there's no sense pursuing this. It's over. You, gotta, you just got to let it go. It's not going to happen. It, there's just no way, Jairus. There's no use. It's too late. Why bother even trying anymore? And can I not say this morning, and I hope you would agree, is that not so often how the enemy works <laughs> to bring discouragement to our minds, to bring you know, despair to our soul, to make us get so worried and concerned? He loves to contribute doubt within our minds. You, you need to let it go. It's not going to happen. It's, just, it's, it's too late now. It didn't work out. And he kind of heaps on the discouragement and the despair. And look what Jesus does, verse 36. As soon as Jesus heard what they were saying, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believe. The Greek literally is Jairus, stop fearing. He saw, he started getting terrified. Stop fearing, start believing. That's what Jesus said to him. Jairus, I understand that you are concerned now, but Jairus, just because an interruption came doesn't mean my power is limited now. It doesn't mean I still can't be God in a situation. Jairus, perhaps you were counting on me to do this. Maybe he gave Jairus his word, I don't know. But Jairus, just because the situation seems worse or it seems now I'm restricted, Jairus, I know about the bad news. I knew before they got here that this was going to happen, but don't give in to fear. Jairus, he simply says, you keep believing. No matter what's been said or what you see, you keep believing. All I'm asking from you, Jairus, is keep a spirit of faith. You keep believing. Don't give in to fear. And you know, I don't know, perhaps that's a word of the Lord for one of you this morning. Maybe the Lord is saying to you, listen, don't start getting afraid now. Just keep believing. Keep believing. Give God time. See what he might do. Verse 37, and he permitted no one to follow. Interesting, before he let everybody follow, this time he says, none of you get to follow. <laughs> he just takes Peter, James, and John. They were sort of that inner circle oftentimes with the Lord. And he came, verse 38, to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. Now, what they arrived to is a traditional Mideastern funeral, which normally included professional mourners. Yes, that's true. In this culture, they believed in being very expressive. Many of them still are to this day, particularly with grief. And they regularly paid people to come and cry at funerals of their loved ones. Josephus, a historian, says even the poorest in Israel would provide no fewer than two flutists and one female mourner. Even the poorest in Israel. They literally would hire someone to come mourn. Two flutists, even if you were the poorest one, you hired two people to play music, one female to come mourn. I thought to myself, man, I had three daughters. I could have been rich. <laughs> hire them out. Honey, can you go cry? Can you go cry for those people? Can you go cry for those people? I would have been living large. But that's what's happening here, that you have all these people in this crowd weeping. The family is genuinely weeping, but literally, that's why he says here, a tumult, because some of these people, they weren't even genuine in their grief. And this bothered Jesus. 
Here's Jairus and his family dealing with pain of death, and these people are here insincerely just wailing and weeping, and, and they don't even really care. And this is offensive to Jesus because he cares about the brokenhearted. Verse 39, when he came in, he said to them, why this commotion and weep? This child is not dead, but sleeping. Again, sleep is often a biblical euphemism for the death of the physical body. You see it in John 11, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because when you look at the body in death, it appears like the person is resting, but sleep is not final. It's not a final condition. Someone awakes. And for the believer, particularly absent from the body, present with the Lord, the believer closes their eyes in the death process, and they awaken in the presence of the Lord automatically. So Jesus knows he's about to revive this little girl from her dead condition and do a miracle and restore her back. So he's encouraging the parents, keep hopeful. In this situation, he's about to do a mighty miracle in this particular scenario. Verse 40 says they ridiculed him. Imagine, again, and these people who were very insincere, what is this guy doing? He's, he's just, we're trying to get paid to grieve at this funeral here. And they're ridic They're actually mocking Jesus now. But that's always what the doubtful voice of the enemy does. He wants to ridicule your faith. But when they put him all, he put them all outside, and the language is literally stern. Jesus kind of grabbed them by the shirt cuff and get out of this house. He took then the father and mother of the child, those who were with him, and they entered the, where the child was lying. And Jesus, verse 31, took the little child by the hand, very tenderly said to her, Talitha Kumai, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. In verse 30, 42, immediately the girl arose and walked. For she was 12 years old, and they were overcome with great amazement. We can only imagine how astonished they were as this powerful miracle comes to pass in this situation. And Jesus commanded them strictly, notice that they should not let anyone know it, and said that something should be given to her to eat. Now, can you imagine, again, like the woman being healed, this family? This 12-year-old little girl, tragedy strikes, she ends up dying, and you know, these two parents miraculously receive their daughter back, she's revived, and she's given back to the parents. And I look at this and I think, man, what a picture of the heart of the Lord to restore families. He gives to these parents their daughter back. They lost their daughter. And Jesus says, she's not done, she's not dead, and he restores this daughter back to these two parents, gives her back to them. And in one day, Jairus' world falls apart before his eyes. And then, shock of all shocks, Jesus restores everything back in a moment. In a moment. Now, I don't know. I'm certain salvation probably reached the heart of Jairus and his family that day as well. I love the practicality of how the text concludes, saying that Jesus, verse 30, 43, said to give her something to eat. Maybe he knows she's a young, growing adolescent. Give her something to eat. Wearsby, who's a great commentator, he said, divine miracles never replace common sense care. <laughs> Give her something to eat. Uh, you know, oftentimes, folks, things do not unfold the way that we expect them to. We see that in this text. We live it in our lives. But when things don't unfold the way that you expect, don't lose heart. Keep believing. Keep seeking Jesus. Keep looking to him because the Lord can still work and he has the power in his good ways and his good time to still do good things in our lives.